this morning. So as you grabbed your Bible, let's open up to Matthew 26. We're going to look at a passage that's probably going to be very familiar to a lot of us in the room, I would hope. Uh, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. We're going to take a look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the question that I would like to propose to you that is uh, really over the course of our time together, inevitably going to produce some sort of confrontation on a variety of levels to our hearts, is what is the beauty and the worth of Jesus worth to you? What is the beauty and the worth of Jesus worth to you? In Matthew chapter 26, we have Jesus in the garden. We know that he is in travail in the place of prayer. Verses 36 to 46, he is in Gethsemane. He recognizes his father's desires for his life. We know that because he um, says in prayer, I know that this is a cup that you have for me. But he also, in what should be encouraging to us, reveals that there's some sort of resistance on the inside that he's acknowledging in the place of prayer. Now, praise God if there's going to be a place where you acknowledge resistance to his will. Let it be done in the place of prayer. <laughs> and he's in the place of prayer acknowledging, I know you want something. And there's something in me that just doesn't want it the same way that I know you want it. And he's praying it through. And he's so pressed in the place of prayer that the Bible says in different translations that he's bleeding out of his face because of the anguish, because of the pressing, because of how burdened he is recognizing that there is something that his father is asking him to do in the place of obedience. And there is also something that is alive in him that is presenting resistance to what it is that he knows his father wants. But he's wrestling it out in the place of prayer. And this should be beautiful to us. Because anyone who tells you in their life that everything that God has ever asked them to do, they have always willingly, joyfully, with great excitement, showed up in order to obey whatever it is that God was saying, is absolutely lying to you. They're absolutely lying to you. It's just not the way that it goes. And at times, there's real resistance. At times, we can acknowledge what God wants. And acknowledging what God wants is not enough. Because obedience is more than a conversation. But most sometimes satisfy the conflict in obedience by becoming proficient in the conversation. Of being able to communicate what it is that God is saying. Well, you know, this is what the Lord has been saying to me for a while. And it sounds incredibly spiritual. Until you ask someone, well, what are you doing about what you know that God has been saying? Because obedience is more than a conversation. It's more than just becoming proficient in language. It's more than just being sensitive to the voice of the Father in your life. And Jesus is wrestling in the place of prayer. He's wrestling and he's burdened. He's overwhelmed. And he's praying it through until he comes to the conclusion that he knows is his desire. 
And that is the end goal of the place of prayer, to allow his will and the strength of his resistance to be conquered so that he can willfully, joyfully take the cup and obey whatever it is that his father is saying to him. Because this should be the result of prayer. We pray until God does something in me to where that resistance that I acknowledge that doesn't want to give him what it is that I know he's asking me for, I pray until he touches me. I pray until he changes me. I pray until my resolve gets softened under the weight of his beauty and the consideration of his worth. I pray until the life of God actually does something unique on the inside of me to where the thing that I previously realized I did not want to do, that I was absolutely taking a stand against, that I realized there was real resistance from me being able to accomplish whatever invitation it was that the Father had presented me with. I pray until that changes. I pray until the strength of my own grip upon my own demands gets crippled. I pray until God does in me what needs to be done so that he can actually get from me what it is that he's asking me for. But how many of us consider the scenario this way? I would suggest to you that God gives grace for more than just what you want to do. Right? At times we think if I don't want to do it, then it can't be the Lord. Oh, well, brother, I don't have that grace. That, that's a grace just for you, right? You're in a special category. God gives grace to you. That, that's a special call, right? Like that's an exclusive compartment where God's graced you for that. No, you just don't want to do it, right? And gives grace for more than what we have desire for. And if we don't reconcile the beauty and the worth of Jesus in our own hearts and in our own lives, then we are going to, at unique intersections, find it incredibly difficult to offer the Lord the worship in the place of obedience that he deserves. Because until you connect obedience to worship, you will be the evaluator out of your own desires as to what's best for you and when it's right for you to do whatever you're agreeing with what God is inviting you to do. And that's why I love the first place that worship is mentioned in the scriptures. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, it's the first reference, it's the first mention of the place of worship. And interestingly enough, there's no lights, camera, action, there's no crowd, there's no instruments, there's no songs. But what we do have is a man by the name of Abraham. And when Genesis 22 opens, it says, and after these things, another translation says, many years later, God came to test Abram. You find a man that walks with God for decades, and God is still interested in what's happening in his heart, which should encourage us that we never graduate from God evaluating our hearts in the place of obedience. We never graduate to a place of spiritual superiority where the Lord can no longer speak to us, test us, invite us to do things that would demonstrate the love that we have for him. And in Genesis 22, it says, many years later, God comes to Abraham to test him. And we find a man that is wrestling with quite possibly the hardest 
thing he has ever heard God say to him. Bring me your son and offer me your only son. And Abram takes the three days journey because he knows that God is going to reveal to him the mount where it is that he is to obey the Lord. And I'm sure Abram is wrestling. I'm sure there's pressure. I'm sure there's difficulty in the place of processing, giving God what it is that he knows God is asking him for. But in verse 5, when they arrive at the base of the mount, Abraham looks at those that had possibly traveled with him, and he said, no, you guys stay here. He said, for me and the boy, we will go to the top of the mount, and there we will worship. Worship is connected in this passage, the first instance in which it is mentioned, with a man that is under great duress and pressure to give God in the place of obedience as a demonstration of love what it is that the Lord is asking him for. And I would ask you this this morning. What is the Lord worth to you in the place of obedience? Because regardless of what we communicate, our lives are evidencing what it is that we actually believe about the beauty and the worth of Jesus. The way that we live our lives the practicality of our loving obedience day by day by day is providing an evidence to our own lives and to the world around us about what it is that we believe about the beauty and the worth of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus actually gave us a barometer so that we would be able to test whether or not we actually love him? He says in John 14, 15, I know those that love me. They're the ones that obey me. He says, because those that love me, they obey me. And those that don't love me, they're the ones that actually are unwilling to obey me. In this context, Jesus reveals or implies that obedience is not an activity issue. Obedience is an issue of love. Obedience is not, well, I need to try harder. I need to do more. I need to figure this out. I need some fleshly mechanical strategy so that I can connect with whatever the end-all objective is that God has spoken to me about. No, no. Jesus says if you have an issue with obedience, it's because you have an issue with love. If you have an issue actually doing the things that I'm saying to you, it's because you have an issue with my beauty and with my worth in your life. And consequentially, he says the inverse or the opposite. And those that don't love me, they're not even concerned with obeying me. In John chapter 8, around verse 32, he would say it this way. I know those that are mine. They're the ones that do what I say. You see, because there's a difference between conformity and surrender. In the place of just trying to get people to do whatever you want them to do, you can incentivize or motivate people in a variety of ways. If I'm an employer in an organizational structure or sphere, and I know that I have the leverage of my or your employment at my disposal, I can motivate you to do things that you possibly really don't want to do. Because I can tell you if you don't do it, you're going to be fired. And with a variety of penalties, I can leverage either what I call incentives. Well, if you want to keep your job, I would suggest you do this. Or I can leverage fear. I'm going to fire you if you don't do this. But fear of penalty 
fear of pain, fear in general, is never going to be as good of a motivator as love. Because fear and love are both motivators. But love is always going to win out in the place of motivation. Lovers will always outwork laborers. Lovers will always outdo those who are just trying to satisfy a task, an objective, appearance, some religiosity list, some things of to-dos or demands out of some cold, sterile, distant construct of an ideal of what this thing is supposed to be about. Because love involves surrender. You might get me to conform to your demands, but you'll never have my heart. I might do what it is that you're saying I have to do, but you'll never get all of me. And Abram comes to the mount because he's recognized God's worth in his own life. And Abram has concluded, you are worth whatever it is that you ask me for. You are worth whatever it is that you are requiring of me. Interestingly enough, in John chapter 12, we have the account similar to what we've just been exhorted from in the place of worship. And they're reclining at Lazarus's house. Jesus is there. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Mary and Martha and others are there sharing a meal. And it says that Mary breaks in with a box of perfume. And she's come to give everything to Jesus. She's come to break open this box in the place of obedience and worship and to pour upon the person of Jesus everything she has. She's come to waste her life on the one that she's determined is beautiful enough, is worthy enough. The beauty and the worth of this man has placed a demand on her life and she has come as a joy-filled response to give him what it is she's concluded he deserves. And as she does this, it says that Judas Iscariot is there alongside of them and that he becomes indignant that he becomes enraged. And Judas's consideration is, why would you have wasted such a costly perfume? He says, for you could have used this in order to benefit the poor. And in John 12, verses 1 through 8, it provides a little bit of a, a deeper glimpse into the heart of what's happening. For John says he wasn't saying this because he actually cared about the poor. But he was saying this because he was the one that kept the money box. And he was a thief. And as a thief, he used to pilfer out of the funds and the transactions and the things that were going on. He was monetizing walking with Jesus according to his own desires. But according to Judas, it was a waste. According to Mary... It was worth. But this is what happens in our hearts when we fall out of love with Jesus. This is what happens in our hearts when the priority of his beauty and his worth are no longer apprehending us in the place of loving obedience. What do I mean? What do I mean is we become like Judas, where the priority of other things 
eclipses the worth of Jesus, where other desires take priority, where other desires become preeminent, where other desires become our preoccupation, and in the consideration of wasting, according to Judas, wasting these things on Jesus, Mary considers it an act of worship. And those who have allowed other things to take the priority in their own heart will always become indignant with those that are radical, extravagant, loving worshipers and obedient to Jesus. You'll always look at the other one in their radicality. You'll always look at the other one in their expression. You'll always look at the other one thinking to yourself, oh, he's just not worth that. That's too much. It doesn't take all that. You just don't have to do all that. Who gets to say that? Because I'm telling you, something happens to the human heart when I see him. Something happens in the human experience when he actually touches me. We're talking about the one who sits enthroned in unending worship, adoration, praise. The one who, according to Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, 5, 7, is enthroned in the midst of unending and ongoing, day and night, night and day, creatures, elders, angels, Revelation 5 and 7, heavenly host, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who sits in the midst of this joyful eruption of awe-inspired songs and worship, the one who, to them, feel privileged to be able to see him and in the place of seeing him with great joy in an unending way are just erupting in the place of singing songs. They're erupting in the place of bowing down. They're erupting in the place of casting crowns. And why? Because the way that their heart has been so overwhelmed at the consideration of his beauty and his worth this is the essence or the implication of consecration. Consecration, which we all would agree is what our lives are about, meaning being devoted to the Lord, living a life that is now exclusive to loving obedience to Jesus. Well, all of that sounds amazing in the place of conversation until the Lord comes to test our hearts in the place of obedience. And we begin to find out through our own wrestling and at times resistance, what the Lord is actually worth to us. I remember months ago when the Lord began speaking to my wife and I about having another child. And I thought to myself, Lord, I am going to be 42 years old. Like, how long is this going to be a thing? Like, I mean, and it's not like I don't have any. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got five. Like, but I can easily, like, you know, wiggle my way out of the conversation. I'm like, well, I got more kids than most people I know. You can even add some families together, and I've got more kids than them. I was like, Lord, I'm be 42 years old. Like, I get it, Abraham. He's cool, man. Like, he's cool to preach about, teach about, talk about. I don't want to be Abraham, though. Like... I'm like, Lord, 42. And the Lord said to me, 
oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And I was like, ooh, all right. I'm, I'm getting some breathing room in the conversation, right? Like, yes. And the Lord was like, I didn't know that you had plans that me speaking to you became an inconvenience for. Please, Mike, talk, talk to me about these plans that you have where my leadership in your life is a disruption to the idea to you of what your life is supposed to look like and be about. Please talk to me about your plans. Please sh share your plans with me that I'm inconveniencing you about. Share with me your plans where I'm becoming a disruption to you. Share with me these plans. Let's, let's talk. And I was like, oh, come on, man. Like, like, are you for real? And he's like, no, no. If you have an idea of what your life is supposed to look like and loving me and obeying me and allowing my leadership to get traction in your life is creating a disconnect or an inconvenience to you, we need to have a conversation about this. Where did these ideas come from? Where did these expectations come from? Right? And now everybody just calm down because I'm not saying everybody's supposed to run out and have more kids. It's not what I'm saying. Some of y'all are like, oh, yeah, no, nah, bro. I, I. I'm not saying everybody's supposed to run out and have more kids, but this is a question that I have for you. In what area of your life has the voice of God become off limits? In what area of your life have you graduated from the leadership of the Father? In what space, in what place, in what conversation, even as we've gathered here this morning, would you say, hey, listen, man, my life is good in this area, this area, and this area. I'm not even open to hearing from God in those spaces. God can't, now, maybe you wouldn't communicate it this way, but in reality, by the way that we live our lives, we evidence this. We give a demonstration that this is actually the posture that we've taken regardless of the communication that comes out of our mouth. Where you would say, I need the Lord's help here. I want him to bless me here. I need breakthrough here. I'm contending for this here. I long to see him do these things here. But in these areas over here, basically just leave me alone. Like I'm not trying to hear it. Don't try to give me no prophetic word. Don't try to lay hands on me. Don't try to give me nothing that God is saying. I'm not even entertaining anything like that. As a matter of fact, anything that inconveniences these things, I'm calling intercessors. I'm binding devils. I'm taking up a fast because that can't be what the Lord is saying. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious until God starts speaking to us. And Jesus is wrestling it out in the place of prayer. Because this is where the Father's leadership is supposed to get traction in our hearts. It's in the place of prayer, where like Jesus at times, a variety of difficulties in the place of obedience. Man, I just don't want to do what he's saying. It's time to pray. And I'm not praying until I can change God's mind. I'm not coming in with the strength of my own agenda and then trying to use my devotion in a manipulative way in order to either change God's mind or convince my own heart that it's no longer what the Lord wants. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's in the place of prayer until he comes to the conclusion, not my will, but yours be done. How many times the strength of our own will, how many times just a disconnect from Jesus' beauty, from his worth, from his value, 
doesn't actually get rooted in a real enough, deep enough way in our own heart so that our life experience can actually be lived as a joy-filled demonstration that you are worth anything that you would say to me. You are worth any invitation that you would present to me. You are worth any unique thing in the place of obedience that you would look to have from me. I remember years ago being challenged in the place of some things that the Lord was saying to me. And in the place of prayer one morning, just knowing, like in my heart, like, man, I just, I do not want to do that. But knowing that God was relentless in his tender interactions with me. How many of you realize that you don't have to do anything? Oh, you have to do nothing. You have to do absolutely nothing. You can live your life your own way. You can pursue all of your own demands. You can rule over your own heart, and you can have it your way. But the tender, relentless kindness of the Lord. And I remember in the place of prayer that morning, the Holy Spirit said to me, something that actually revolutionized my life. The Holy Spirit said to me, he feels loved this way. Now you see, for some of us, that phrase sounds so simple. Oh, well, who really gives a rip how he feels loved? I don't want to do that. And I think often we forget that Jesus is a person. And as a person, there's a personality. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, those that obey me are the ones that love me. What is he implying? He's implying, I feel loved well in the place of obedience. Well, now it's no longer about a to-do list. Now it's about, am I actually willing to love him the way that he's asking to be loved from me? Am I actually willing to do the things in the place of loving obedience that are going to demonstrate that I love him the way that I say I do, the way that I think I do, the way that at least I'm trying to communicate to others? Because if you put it in this area or in this space, then it's about a whole lot more than just a 90-minute experience on a Sunday. When you put the voice of God and the leadership of the Father in my life in a practical way, day by day by day, and then you say that Jesus feels loved by the way that I obey him, oh, it's going to change the whole ballgame for me. Because now, if the barometer in my life is the evidence of my own obedience, then now I've got to consider in greater detail, what is God actually saying to me and what am I actually doing about it, if anything? What is he saying to me and what am I doing about it, if anything? Man, how often we easily exempt ourselves from the place of obedience because our heart posture has fallen into a category like Judas did in John 12, where we have proximity to Jesus but we don't realize that other things in our hearts have taken priority over the person of Jesus. Where we consider I've got exposure 
to the presence of God. When in reality, exposure doesn't always mean alignment. Where I'm near to him, seemingly so in proximity, but in my own heart, other things have eclipsed him. And I consider certain conversations to be a waste. I consider certain offerings of obedience to be too much. I'm always weighing and judging and evaluating whether or not it's actually worth it to do certain things. And before we know it, we've become the evaluator of our own life as a demonstration and we work by our own wisdom and our lives are being governed by a variety of other desires other than simply being his and finding the joy of our life to offer him whatever it is that he's looking for from us. Hey, would you do this? Why? Because I feel loved when you do this. Hey, would you, would you give me this? I don't, I don't really want to do that. But I feel loved when you do that. In Genesis 22, when Abram is at the top of the mount, and again, he's gone to worship. But he's gone to worship in the way that he is going to evidence love that he has in a practical way. He's going to offer to the Lord what it is that the Lord is asking him for in the place of obedience. And he's there on the mount, and he raises the knife, and God speaks to him. And God says to him, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, don't do it. He's like, I just wanted to know if there was anything that had taken priority above me in your own heart. I just wanted to know if there was any other that was rivaling the affection that you have for me that I've been asking you for. Until we see obedience as an evidence of affection, will always be the judge of whether or not it's actually worth it. We'll always be looking for, well, what's in it for me? Well, what's the benefit? Well, is it going to help me get to where I want to go? Well, is it going to help me connect the dots with the things that I think I want? Until we see obedience and recognize that in the place of obedience, there's a demonstration of love and longing and affection for the man Jesus that he actually recognizes and receives as love, as worship. Then we're always going to trivialize and create exemptions for us in the place where his leadership is trying to become more real in our lives and get more deeply rooted in our hearts and get more traction in the way that we live by day by day. And so I would ask you this morning, in what way has the leadership of Jesus been trying to get greater traction in your heart? What has he been asking you for? that has produced a challenge? What has he been looking for from you in the place of loving obedience that's brought about a pushback, resistance? Beloved, I'm telling you, if there's something that you realize God is longing to have from you and you also realize that there is adversity in the place of your will becoming subject to his leadership, it's time to offer yourself in the place of prayer like Jesus did. 
It's time to offer yourself in a garden-type experience where you pray it out, where you wrestle it out, where you bleed it out on behalf of the Father's leadership and God's purposes in your life. Well, man, you just don't get it. I've been praying about it for a week and nothing's budging. It must mean that, you know, God doesn't actually want me to do it. No, 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 no. It must mean that you just got to keep swinging it in the place of prayer. Well, man, I prayed about it 73 times and nothing's changing. Well, we got to pray about it a 74th time. Because we wrestle it out in the place of prayer. And we put our lives on the altar until God changes whatever is happening in me so that he can get from me the thing that he's asking for, that he feels loved by, and that's going to evidence the affection that I say I have for him in the place of a conversation, where what comes off my lips actually gets demonstrated in my life. Well, brother, you don't understand. It's the same thing. No, it's not. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You guys are just too swayed by everybody in the crowd. He said, but I know what's happening on a heart level. He said, because with their lips, they praise me. But their hearts, they're far, far from me. He said, they sing songs to me with their lips, but they've never actually surrendered in their heart. They've actually never given me what it is that I'm looking for, the intimate access through leadership in the place of surrender to where they are actually free enough to do anything, go anywhere, occupy any space, respond to me in any way because their hearts have come alive to my beauty and my worth. Because they actually have determined that I'm worth it, they're now free enough to live the rest of their days as a joy-filled response to what it is that I've revealed to them. Is he worth it to you? Is he worth what? Is he worth whatever he's asking you for? Is he worth whatever request it is that's him knocking on the door of your heart? Right? This is Revelation 3.20. Yea, though I stand at the door and I knock. Tender, patient, kind. He's not kicking the door down and running in with a bunch of demands in order to arrest us and force us. He stands and he knocks and he waits. And Revelation 3.20 says he's waiting for someone to come to the door and to open and be hospitable to him. You can come in and have your way. I wonder how many of us this morning would be willing to actually pray that prayer in the direction of the Lord. Lord, you can come in and have your way. And if you give me grace to do what it is that you're asking me to do, if you touch my heart, to actually transform me in the place of my resistance and all of my objections and unique exemptions. If you actually do something in me to change what's happening in me to where I can do with joy the thing that you've been looking for, 
where you don't have to force me, but the way that you love me actually brings me to the place of surrender where I'm willing to bring to you the thing that I used to fight you about, where I'm willing to actually run to you with joy and offer to you the thing that previously I acknowledged I would never actually do. Lord, if you do something in me this morning, it's time to pray it out. And so I'm going to ask everybody to stand. This is what we're going to do. Right there where you are, I'm going to ask you to turn it into an altar. I'm going to ask you to turn it into an altar. And in the consideration of your own heart and the conversation of your inner man or inner life, let's just before the Lord begin to weigh out what it is that God is actually saying to us and what it is that his love is actually longing to see in the place of his leadership in our lives. And just before the Lord, for the next moment or two, I just want us to, in as open and as transparent of a way as we know how. Man, if you've got objections, just be honest with God. I mean, most of us are being honest already by the way that we're living our life, but I'm saying in the conversation, in prayer, Let's acknowledge, Lord, I know that this is what you're knocking on the door for. But what I also know is that I'm hiding in the house, trying to pretend like I'm not home. Yeah, Lord, I pray all over the room that you would speak to your people. Oh, Jesus. We need your help in a greater way than I think at times we realize. Lord, your great love for us, longing to get more deeply rooted, longing to be able to provide leadership to our lives. Lord, we say and pray and sing my life is not my own, to you I belong. But oh, how often we rule over the throne of our heart. Lord, I pray that you would do something unique and powerful in our heart to where we could become like Mary, ready to waste our life on Jesus, ready to break open everything that previously meant more to me than you. Whatever that actually means, whether it's the consideration of finances, some sort of career pursuit or objective, whether it's leisurely, hobbies, extracurricular activities, whatever, Lord. Just my own insecurities that always demand that I be in control where the previous consideration is that these things meant too much to me in order to offer them to you. I pray that we would come rushing in like Mary to break those things open, to cast them down even as elders do their crowns and to offer you the loving obedience and the worship that you deserve.
Come on, for the next moment or two as, as we close out together. I'm just going to ask you to turn that space that you're standing in into an altar. And in whatever way you feel it to be appropriate to respond to the Lord. If that means that you feel it necessary for you just to come down to the front and maybe kneel or stand or, or lift your hands and offer a devotion or a song or a prayer to the Lord, then do that. If you feel it necessary to kneel where you are and just right there in your own seat or in your own space, just create an altar experience where you can ask God for grace to become more subject to his voice and to his leadership then let's do that. If you feel it just to step out in the aisle, maybe lift your hands or do whatever it is that for the next moment or two is going to be the response that you believe the Lord is looking for from you, then let's just do that. And let's take the next couple of moments and just do that together in the place of worship. In the place of worship. And connecting worship to obedience. Let's just do that. Come on, so I just invite you right now all over the room. Let's just respond to the Lord. Whatever it is that you know the Lord is asking you. Let's just respond to the Lord. Just another moment. Come on, Lord, I want you to have your way in me. 
to have your way in me, Lord. Oh, God, I need your help. I need you to do it, Lord. I need you to break down the barriers, the resistance, not so that I do it to satisfy some external objective, but where what's happening on the inside of me can do it with joy, can do it as an act and as an expression of love. Oh, Lord, I need your help. Touch me this morning. Give me grace, Lord. Give me grace, Lord. Oh, I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I don't want any space or place of my life to be off limits to you. Where your voice can no longer be present, can no longer be applied to my life in the way that you desire, Lord. I need your help. Come on, just another moment. Offer your heart to the Lord this morning.